Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Midpoint with me, Gabby Logan. This is the last in our series spotlighting extraordinary people with powerful stories to share. They may not be famous or considered experts. They may not even be at the midpoint in life. But when you hear their stories, I'm sure you'll see why I've invited them onto the podcast. There are learnings we can take from all of them. My guest today is no exception. And I'm delighted to say she's also the first fighter pilot we've ever had on the podcast. Cue the Top Gun music. Mandy Hickson was only the second female to fly a Tornado GR4 on the front line. And she's pioneered the movement of women into the RAF. She knows what a high-stakes mission really looks and feels like, having completed 45 missions over Iraq and three duty tours. And in her years as a fast jet pilot, Mandy had to master decision-making under pressure and hone the ability to lead quite literally from the front. Now she shares all she's learned with others and has published a brilliantly titled memoir, An Officer, Not a Gentleman. And Mandy joins me here in my podcast room right now. Lovely to be here. It's really great to have you on this special strand that we're doing uh, in the autumn. And your story came to me via my husband, actually, who'd heard you speak. And he came home late one night and he said, I've found this amazing woman that you've got to have on. I paid on. him. I paid him to say that to you. Yeah. <laughs> Her story's so inspiring. So let's go back to the very beginning. Sure. And you as a little girl and how you came to join the air cadets in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So my grandpa was a pilot in the Second World War and I'd grown up hearing his stories. And so when I was sitting next to my mum on the sofa and she was reading the local newspaper, we were growing up in Manchester and there was an article about the fact that the air cadets was actually going to be opening its doors to girls for the very first time. And she said, oh, I think you'd be really interested in this. So what year is this? The, oh, gosh. So I was 13 at the time. So that must have been... God. Oh, this is this is the menopausal brain. You see, I haven't been working over the summer, so I've just completely switched off. So, um, yeah, I was born in 73. So, so this, this must have... have been 86. Yeah. There we go. Um, and she sort of said, oh, you know, it would be fun to join. And, and I was like, yeah, but um, Tom, you know, Tom Selleck's Magnum's on a Tuesday night. I don't want to miss that. And then she said, you go to an all girls school. It's your only opportunity to meet some boys. So Magnum PI nearly nearly stopped me from following my dream because when (laughs) I then joined the Air Cadets it really changed things I mean I'd always been what would be classically called a tomboy in those days so I was always into the climbing trees I love getting dirty lived my life in tracksuits which was fantastic and I joined this organisation where I really felt I could be myself and we did night exercises we would put cam cream on our faces crawling through the mud but we went flying and it was the actual act of the flying. And I remember very clearly my very first flight. And I said to the, the pilot, do you get paid to do this? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I went, oh, my gosh, it was like this light bulb moment. I thought, right, this is this is what I'm going to do. But at that point, there were no women fighter pilots. No, in fact, <laughs> you couldn't be a pilot in the it Air was, Force full stop at that point. They didn't accept women. No, they didn't accept women. So it's a purely male society. And so, yeah, I'd I'd chosen an impossible dream, um, which was frustrating, to say the least, at that stage. But I think when you're younger, you you 
you're oblivious to it a little bit. And mm -hmm. I think you're also probably very naive. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, they'll change it at some point. And so you just keep on progressing towards those goals, really. So you carried on with the academics and yeah. carried on with your education. Absolutely. So, yeah, very, very sporty. Went through school, went off. Um, I gained a flying scholarship, which gave me 30 hours of free flying. Uh, from there, I gained my private pilot's license. I'd saved up my money from a paper round. Can you believe it? That was a lot of papers I delivered yeah. um, to pay for those 10 hours of flying. And I gained my license. You have to have 40 hours to get a license. And I got it on my 40th hour to the minute, which was fantastic. Then I went off to university, to Birmingham. I was studying sports science and geography there. And I joined the University Air Squadron. Again, still women can't fly. Um, but the University Air Squadron was accepting women and I applied and got in and there was loads of flying to be had there. So I gained about 160 hours of flying at that stage. And was that, did you have to pay for that as well? No, that, it was so all was... provided by the Royal Air Force. It's a recruiting tool in many ways. They're trying to really look at graduates and show them the life that you could have in the Air Force. So did that give you hope if the Royal Air Force was doing this kind of programme at universities that there might be a pathway opening up for you? Yeah, so at this stage they had now opened the doors to women flying multi-engine aircraft um, and Judy Gibson was the very first one that did that. And then I was in my second year at uni when it all changed and I remember the boss coming in. It was a lovely gentleman, uh, Carl Bufton, and he walked in and he said, girls, they've changed the rules women can be fast jet pilots and there were three girls in the bar and um yeah literally our eyes lit up and we were like great and myself and this girl ness um who lives just down the road actually she we both applied um straight away and we got straight through to to being called into the officers air crew selection center at RAF cranwell and we went through the process actually went through the whole selection process together how much of a you know at that moment when History is changing and unfolding before your eyes, you know, you're, and you're willing it to because obviously this is your dream. How much of that was, do you think, you were driving forwards wanting it to change and how much was it like kind of, I am going to be sure that I'm, you know, I'm going to be part of this. Were you kind of yeah. aware of being a pioneer and being at the vanguard? Not really, actually. And I know that sounds crazy, but you're 18, 19 mm. years old and you're just following your passion. You're doing what you absolutely love to do. But I do remember this feeling of, of actually, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I will be achieving this goal without a doubt. I mean, I nearly hit a huge brick wall because then failed all of the computer-based aptitude tests. Which, which a lot do, of women did. Which a lot of women did. And I took them a second year and you can only ever take them twice. And I failed it on my second attempt as well. And I, basically I thought, that's it. And I remember bursting into tears, I'll be honest, I got back to the squadron. And again, this same boss um, said to me, no, this is not the end. In fact, this is the the fuel that I need because your actual performance in the Airman D is excellent. This does not correspond to your results that you're getting. So maybe the tests are flawed. Maybe we need to look into this. And it turned out there was an unconscious bias. Yeah, there was, absolutely. And about 75% of women that were taking these tests were failing them outright. But they'd never been tested on women and they'd not been designed for women. And women had never even come into the forefront of anyone's thoughts. Mm. So, yeah, they just basically... Thought we would fit into the system. Historically, what were the reasons given for women being excluded from the ARIA, from the upper echelons? I don't think there was any reasons given. It, it was just a case of, you know, when we look at, you know, people going to war, it was always young men that were selected, wasn't it? Women took on the role of the, you know, the Atta girls, you know, flying the Spitfires. But as soon as that war was over, that was it. They were disbanded. They were back to admin tasks and back being ground based. 
So we have had pioneering women in the past, really, but it's just, I, was, I just feel so lucky in many ways and blessed to have been at the right time, at the right place to, to really take that forward. I think of all the women before you. Who I know. And, and the actually, dreams and the hopes and the desires. Yeah, to be honest, Gabby, and that's one thing I'm finding really, really touching now is that as I've sort of do, you know, a lot of sort of speaking and I've written a book and loads of women getting in touch. In fact, I just literally read an, a text from someone on your driveway when I waited to come in. And, uh, and she just said, you are following my dream. When I looked at doing this, I was just told that women weren't allowed to do it. She said, I went on to become a female firefighter. So, so the IF wasn't saying, as say, for example, when women's football was banned, it was because they didn't want the balls to hit women in the stomach in case they, you know, I don't, <laughs> damaged I don't even... there, were, there were no kind of physical. Um... No, I mean, of course, they always said, oh, you know, it's because you were, you know, are you strong you won't enough? You make the right decisions. All of these sorts of things. Absolutely So it ridiculous. reflected society. I think it did. It was more a societal thing, actually, as opposed to a physical thing. I mean, they were going to bring out the things of, are you strong enough? Are you physically fit enough? Well, of course we are. And actually, you don't have to be that strong or that fit. You know, you have to have a good brain. Well, women's brains are exactly the same as men's brains. I mean, apart from when we're going through the menopause, obviously. <laughs> um, but um, all of those things, you know, actually, there was no there was no basis for it. No, no. Um, and so they saw that. And so there you are kind of, again, in a very fortuitous situation where they've, they've realised that these tests are flawed. And eventually you get your opportunity. But you don't go in straight away into a kind of a pathway to be a tornado no, exactly. Pilot. And and that was quite interesting as well. I mean, another little thing was um, I applied when I applied for the flying scholarship and I went for the selection. I was told I had an obesity problem because their height charts for women only went up to five foot eight. And you're so six said, foot. I'm six foot tall. And they said, oh, so you should be nine and a half stone. And I was 12 and a half stone. And I said, I was playing county sport. I was really physically fit. And they said, yeah, you need to lose three stone. How are you going to remedy your obesity problem? I was 17. And I was doing more sport than you can imagine. I was really fit and really sporty, healthy and yeah. not overweight at all. And I went on the world's biggest diet basically for five months and I lost three stone in oh weight. I got to nine and a half stone. And I remember going into the doctor and she said, what on earth has happened to you? And again, it was just because they didn't, women adjust weren't- Adjust the charts. They didn't adjust the charts. I mean, for goodness sake. So that was frustrating. <laughs> you were also told that your femur was millimetres away from stopping Oh my gosh, well. it was, absolutely. But but no, I mean, but that's a normal thing. So, right. you so know, yeah, they do the ergonomics, doesn't woman. matter. You have to ergonomically fit into the jet. And so these are, these are actually the, the reasons that probably prevent a lot of women if you're very small, mm. because they will actually strap you into a seat and then you like pull things out like your arm and they'll mm. measure, can you actually reach the switches? So there's an optimum physical specimen that is- yeah. Yeah. a fighter pilot and that could be a man or a woman and but... I think Tom Cruise <laughs> but um, I know you think about him a lot <laughs> what can I say I you were mean... quite impressed when you met my dog Maverick today <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> so sad aren't I uh, I'm not not stereotypical at all um, no it's um, I would say the, the the perfect height would probably be about 5'9 five, 5'10 five, um, you know because ultimately you're in a sort of you know that medium rate size range but i have friends i've got a, a male friend and he went through training with me and he was six foot four but it just must be that his femur length was a certain length and his back length so you you can be within millimeters i did always think though i did fit in officially but when i flew in the back seat of a hawk if they rolled inverted and I wasn't expecting it, my right knee, there's a little switch down by your right knee and it's a lovely switch and it basically tests all of the alarms and the lights. 
And you test it on the ground to check that all the bulbs are working, you know, so that if you get an emergency, if you want to know that the bulb's going off. And every single alarm goes off. And basically, if you rolled inverted, my knee would always hit it. And I'd go, oh, sorry. And everyone went, wow. And, all these, and the person in the front seat is going, oh my gosh, emergency. I go, sorry, it's my knee. It's my knee. And I used to think, oh my goodness, if we were to pull the ejection handle, then would my knee be hitting the cowling? Oh my gosh. I did always worry about that. Yeah, that does sound like it might be something that would slightly concern me. Yeah. Um, so just step back a little bit. So you said before you did sports science and geography. Yeah. I'd always assumed to be a, a pilot in the RAF, you'd have to do some kind of science-based degree. No, absolutely not. And they will often say, and I, this is the best piece of advice I can ever give to anyone actually that's looking at going into this or their children are, if you want to go to university, do a degree that interests you. It doesn't matter what your degree is in because ultimately you're going to spend three years studying a subject and they just want to know if you are going into the graduate scheme that you've hit a, a level of learning and it doesn't really matter what that's in. So do something that you prefer to do. I think one of the best examples was a guy that joined the, joined the university studying aeronautical engineering. He did one one month and then he swapped to African studies because he realised that he had a job at the end of it with the Air Force anyway and he may as well enjoy his flying and basically not work very hard. He saw that as an easy out, did he? He might have done. He was the most chilled character. He did go on to become an excellent pilot. So all the training is on the job, so to speak. It it's is. It's all about understanding the aircraft, understanding yeah. your job in the aircraft and being a commercial pilot and being an RAF pilot, obviously there are lots of different considerations. Yeah, it's a very, very different world. Um, I think when you think about commercial flying, I mean, firstly, you have got to have the skill set and you have to go through the training and the training is rigorous to become a commercial pilot as well. But I do believe that when you're actually flying that aircraft, a lot of it is about managing a system. Also, all the people we've seen, the recent delays and everything, that those pilots are not just flying the aircraft. They want to be visible. They need those communication skills. So there are other skill sets that I think you need, which we have had to focus on a lot within our human performance training that we do to actually make you a really good commercial pilot. When you're looking at a military pilot, there's obviously lots of different military pilots. You've got fast jets, multi-engine and rotary as well. And often people think, you know, to have got to become a fast jet pilot, you've got to be the best pilot. You've got a different skill set. And also people do join and some don't want to be fast jet pilots. I do have um, a colleague that joined with me. She wanted to be a helicopter pilot. So, you know, you can, there is some choice in there as well. I was always of the mindset that I wanted to fly fast jets. And to do that, you have to be graduating at the top of your courses. You have to have that that mindset. And a lot of that goes into other things. It's not just the raw flying skills. It's things like situational awareness, your decision making under mm -hmm. pressure, all of those different aspects come into play. Uh, of course they do. I mean, when you're in the heat of a, of a mission and yeah. you flew many, many, many missions across Iraq and yep. um, you will encounter changes to the you know the plan and have to react to those yeah. how do they train you to do that it's a it's an amazing training system firstly the one thing that you do that i don't think a lot of people are probably aware of is that your leadership training so it's officer training but that is leadership training and what you're doing is you're taking someone right at the start of their career and in completely different way to any other organization i know and i do a lot of speaking at different you know corporate institutions and everything and i said do you do you ever think about doing your leadership training first they go, no, why would we? Because what happens normally, of course, is people learn the tools of their trade and then they might get sent on a management course if they're lucky. But you're doing it the other way around in the military because actually what you're wanting to instill in people is that leadership is an action. It's not a title. It's not just something that's on a wall. It's something that you're going to display right from the start of your career. Mm. 
And that's what they're doing when they're giving you those leadership skills. So you do nine months of officer training and then you ping out the other side. And then obviously everyone goes to their different branches, but the pilots will then start a rigorous four to five years of training. I think, I mean, when I went through, it was about 3.7 million, they would say, to train someone to get to the front line. Well, that's obviously have gone up now. Wow. And how many officers uh, graduate a year then? Um, Very few at the moment. I think there are fewer fewer fast jet pilots than there are... um, Premier League footballers. Wow. You know, so you are looking at a very, very elite group. It used to be about 3,000 people apply, one person ends up in a fast jet pocket. Someone told me it's gone up to about 8,000 and one person gets in. So you've got, a, a you know, a, a force which is shrinking. There are fewer slots there that are available. And so you really do have to be the very best of the best. And along the way, obviously, you've joined various, whether it was the cadets, you know, one of the first girls to do that, one of the first intake of women who could actually fly a jet, a tornado. So each time you're entering very male spaces, um, (laughs) let's say. Yes. (laughs) I mean, you couldn't get a more male environment. I mean, I I never served with another woman until my very last um, tour. So I was always the only woman on any detachment, which was really tough at times. Mm. Um, so let's talk about the first time you kind of, because I think it was, it was actually really when you've got your first squadron, you joined your first squadron that yeah. you found things. Yeah, up to that point, I think it was really interesting. You know, you've joined and four years later, you finally arrive at, the, at your squadron. But in that four years, you've gone through each training course with the same guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say, guys, there was a, another couple of girls who were on courses. So in they front kind of see you me. as one of the lads. I was. Yeah, they were like brothers to me, best friends and godmother to many of their kids and things like that. So, no, really close. And these were your support group. These these people, we you you have camaraderie like you will have never experienced it before. And then you ping out the other side and you arrive in a squadron. And I was sent down to two squadron down at RAF Marham in Norfolk. And I was really excited to be arriving on this squadron. And I walk in and I know one person who had been on a couple of courses in front of me. And um, and then you realise, you know, I went into the crew room and you see every screensaver is a naked woman, for example. There are all the Pirelli-type posters on the walls. There's no female toilet. There's no female flying kit. You know, you're in. I was in male long johns with a Y front wow. for the whole of my service career. Wow. Um, so, which is really handy because obviously that's really nice and cool in the wrong areas. And so things like that, you know, they'd changed their policy, but they hadn't really thought through the process of actually you're going to have a woman now that's coming into this environment. And obviously we just worked around it. I made every screensaver a naked man. And then the next day they were all landscapes, you know. But it was very small gains. But also this was a very, it was a very alpha male. You're not going to get probably more sort of red characters than fast jet male pilots. Again, I think that has changed as well. And I definitely saw in my time in the people that were coming in were changing and they went from being less sort of toxically male. So from what you say there, you feel like that they they almost they come in as those alphas. It's yeah. not that the machine creates them, that it, yeah. they're the ones who actually manage to make make it through all that laborious and very difficult and rightly so challenging process of selection are those characters at the end. Yeah, and different fleets tended to breed very different characters as well. So the tornado actually was renowned as being a fairly chilled environment. If you were going to fly single seat that would be different again. So they they consider themselves to be the best of the best. 
and there's good reason that's, for that. Just they to are. bring this to common kind of cultural references, that's the top gun. Plane. That is, well, it's your single seat. So for us, it was the Harrier and the Jaguar. Right. Um, that is your top gun reference. Yeah. Yes. But not with your... Not with a co-pilot. Not with, not with someone sitting in your so back seat. just on your own. You're by yourself. Yeah. And so, you know... There's a lot going on. So, Man, yes. <laughs> you know, to fly the Harrier, which was the vertical takeoff capability aircraft, you know, they were good. But the arrogance, I'll be honest, that came with them. Mm. We always had the joke, how do you know there's a Harrier pilot in the bar? Because they will tell you, <laughs> you know, and that was fine. But I sort of saw that very close in close quarters when I was um, what's called holding, waiting to go through my flying training. And you have these gaps where you end up taking on different roles. And I took on an ops op officer, so an operations officer down in Joy de Col in southern Italy when there was the Bosnian conflict was going on and I was serving with a, a tornado fighter squadron, the F3s, and there were some Harrier pilots out there. And I did not like the attitude of them at that stage. And and we saw real animosity, bizarrely, between the Harrier pilots and the tornado pilots. They almost looked down their nose at them and I thought, yeah, that's not for me at that stage, actually. And I do get a lot of banter now from Harrier pilots all the time who say, I can't believe you talk down to, you know, about us. But actually, I like I like flying with someone. I like the camaraderie of it. Uh, you've got someone if you have to divert because something happens. You've got you've got a mate with you in the bar. Fantastic. But also, I did like that whole crew atmosphere. And so, perhaps the Tornado GR four fleet wasn't perhaps as as alpha male as some of them. But it definitely felt like that when I went on operations in Iraq. And we were all in a block together, sleeping in, a, in one block. And every time I went, I went out on three different tours. And each time I'd go out, they'd always give me the room with wall-to-wall -wall pornography. You know, that was just standard. I would strip it all off, put it outside and yell, porn's up, boys, you know. Um, but it was those tiny little things, you know. They always say it's the microisms, isn't it, that, mm. that you just sense. Well, that wasn't a tiny thing at all. That was probably no, quite a big, thing, a big thing, relatively. Yeah. But, you know... You're, there's no female toilet, no female shower. So you're in the queue with your towel around you, just with all the guys, you know, waiting for those two showers. But I was bullied as well in that first tour out there by one of the one of the pilots who was a really big character. And he made my life particularly unpleasant. And I remember we had one 20 minute phone call home a week. And I would I'd use it predominantly on women, my, my girlfriends, my mum, my mm. sister, because I was like, I can't bear to talk to another man. Mm. Um, and it was my poor boyfriend, Craig, was sort of waiting, going, don't I get any of your 20 minutes? <laughs> I was like, yeah, OK. He would get the bit of me crying at the end where I go, I want to come home. I hate this. Because he was making my life really, really unpleasant. And did you have a process or any kind of way of, you know, going to an HR person? No, saying, gosh, none of that no, existed in those no. days. I just put my head down I had loads of books I just sat in my room and read and but I you did, didn't quit Mandy I did so not quit I how, did say to him I might quit and he said don't you bloody dare your boyfriend yeah that. yeah he's my not husband the guy now. who was bullying not the guy who was bullying me no we, we, we was that his end game I mean was he hoping that he could prove somehow that women couldn't do this job no what was very interesting actually was we or did he just fancy you I mean there is that well option. I mean who wouldn't he's human um <laughs> Not. Um, yeah, it was interesting, actually, because Craig made me do some role playing, not in a dodgy way, by the way, <laughs> of the conversation I would have to tackle him when mm. we got back. And we went through all of these. This is how I feel. This is when you made, did this. this. Yeah. And we did this. And anyway, we were in a bar on a Friday evening and it was a sort of happy hour environment. And my boyfriend was with me and he was standing at the bar with his wife and Craig. And it's the moment I went, oh, I don't want to. And he said, no, 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 let's do it. And so we went over and I had the exact conversation that I had practiced with, with his Craig, wife there as with well. his wife there. That's she went, how dare you do that to Mandy? And anyway, he 
took it and then on the Monday morning he called me into his office and I thought so he was oh, senior to you oh yeah yeah and he was a really big character on the squadron mm-hmm. as well he was one of these sort of people that you the atmosphere changed when he walked into mm-hmm, a room mm-hmm. um, people's behaviours changed yeah absolutely and and basically he said Mandy I've thought about what you said over the weekend in fact I've thought of nothing else and you were absolutely right and he said I just want to explain myself I was angry because I was missing the first few months of my daughter's life and basically you were the one person I just decided to vent all my anger on Wow. And I thought, well, at least you've reflected. Yeah. We did then have a really good working relationship, actually, after that, which was really good. And I felt, you know, it was a really good life lesson for me because had I thought about it, would it have been better to tackle him earlier about mm. it? And I think I speak to a lot of people who are in that position mm. and I say the earlier you can tackle that sort of thing, the better. Call mm. people out. How long did you wait? How many? It was months, right. months. Mm. Um, but I just feel if I'd taken and tackled him on it when I was out there, it yeah. would have fallen on deaf ears because he just couldn't see where he was, what mm. he was doing. Yeah, it was probably your your boyfriend was right. That yeah. was the moment, wasn't it? And yeah, especially it was. I think having his wife there is also it was probably very quite, powerful. It too. was, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Because um, she's probably seen that side of it. She probably points, has, and so. I have heard he's done it now to many other people throughout his time in the air force, which uh, is a real shame. Yeah, well, those kinds of behaviours and experiences that you had, hopefully learnings will kind of dictate that they are fewer and fewer for women coming through. Absolutely that. And I think when you're at this sort of cutting edge, you know, you you don't realise that you, as you were saying, are a pioneer. And when I was in the Air Force flying on the front line, I, I did we did get a, f- a female navigator that came through, Helen, and the two of us flew together. And I'll never forget, and I decided to write a very hilarious article in a magazine, which was the station magazine. I said, two birds do it together in a tornado. She was not amused. <laughs> she contacted me when I was in, in Iraq and she said, have you seen this article that someone's written? I was like, it was me. She's like, what? And she was really annoyed because she'd been at the still back at Marham at the time. And the guys had seen this, this, and they basically photocopied it like a gazillion times and, and basically decorated the entirety of the junior crew with this headline, oh, two birds did. <laughs> so she was a little bit annoyed. Um, but we flew together and no publicity, no nothing. It was not even an issue. And then I noticed in the newspaper about four or five years later, wow, history has been made. Two women have uh, flown this all-female crew in a tornado. I was like, mm, yeah, we actually did that quite a while ago. But I think when we were going through it, we, we didn't want to be highlighted. We just wanted to do our jobs. and We really wanted to sort of stay beneath that. Were you more conscious of not making any mistakes because, you know, you thought they would perhaps be singled out or highlighted more? Because yeah, I think I was. I, I, I think there was always going to be that additional pressure, especially because I'd failed these aptitude tests. And basically, when I think back as well, when I received a le- the letter telling me that they were going to take me on as a pilot, I was actually um, had been taken on initially as an air traffic controller. And we continued to campaign while I was going through officer training for this. And then I received this letter and I remember just opening it and it said, Dear Flying Officer Wells, you know, the RAF will give you your branch change to pilot. I was like, yes. And then I found out they were taking me on as a test case and they actually told me they were waiting to see how far I got before I failed. Wow. In black and white. Wow. And what that did was, I never realised it at the time, was it planted a seed of doubt because up Mm. to that point I'd been a really confident young woman. I hadn't had no doubt in my abilities. I'd always, when everyone said, what are you doing? I was going, "I'm, I'm going to be a pilot. You know, I never doubted it. Suddenly they planted this this doubt now, which would grow and it would grow into imposter syndrome because every time you would struggle and potentially fail a flight, you'd think it's because I'm not good enough. It's because I failed the test. I'm a test case. I've got to prove them. And so, that you know, it's a tough, 
tough course anyway. You know, it's probably one of the hardest training courses you're going to do in any in any discipline anywhere in the world. Put on top of that, you're one of the first women going through and you failed all the tests, which actually dictate whether you can be a pilot. And so all of those layers of stress, you know, we often talk about this stress bucket in aviation. Um, and I think it's a really good analogy because, you know, when we go into work, we don't know what's going on in people's lives. And this stress bucket builds up with these layers and layers. And actually, if we can work out what you can control within that stress bucket and let the rest of it go, it's really, really helpful. And we talk a lot about that. I talk a lot about controlling the controllables mm -hmm. and let it go. And how did you do that then? Well, it was hard at the time. I The support I had with of my colleagues was phenomenal. And I mean, there's a beautiful story that um, I was about to fail flying training and I was, literally had my chop ride the next day where if you don't pass it, you're leaving, mm -hmm. you know. And the, the trip I'd been failing was something called battle turns where you, two aeroplanes take off and you're flying low level, you're hitting targets within five seconds. We didn't have the modern technology in these days either. So no head up display, no GPS, no one saying turn left, you know, but the next roundabout. And so an, another aircraft is airborne as well, who's the enemy or your instructor, and they're trying to shoot you down. So you're avoiding the threat, you're hitting targets, the weather is poor, you know, you're managing everything. And you've got to stay with your wingman because he's the only person that can see into your six o'clock position and that's where you're going to be attacked from. And so you have to do these things called battle turns where you coordinate two aircraft turning, you know, in a very coordinated manner so that you always roll out a beam each other rather than behind each other. Anyway, I was failing it. I just couldn't get my head around it at all. And I sit in my room every single night and I'd have a cardboard cockpit and I'd run through the same process and I was getting the same results. There's a knock on my door and it's a lovely guy called Puppy. Um, he was the youngest and had boundless energy. And he said, Mandy, we're taking you out. I was like, oh, I'm not going anywhere. I've got my chop ride. And he said, no, no, trust me. Took me down to the bike sheds. Thought, trust Wayne's at this point. <laughs> but we got onto a bike, cycled to the other side of the airfield and the rest of the course were all waiting. And they stuck little wings on. And basically we, we then cycled around this parade square with them yelling 30 starboard 60 port doing all of these battle turns that I couldn't get my head around just in a very you know one dimensional sense suddenly we were doing it on bikes and they were like stop thinking about the numbers Mandy stop focusing on the minutiae just feel it oh my goodness it everything fell into place flew the trip the next day it was brilliant wow I landed and I still get goosebumps when I think about it because when I landed the instructor said what the hell has happened? Overnight. He said, this is like flying with a completely different pilot. And he said, honestly, Mandy, and I told him the story and he just said, oh my gosh, this is phenomenal because... And they were blokes. Who'd all all guys, all yeah. guys, yeah. And he said, the irony is, Mandy, you were actually in competition with each other because at the time there were limited slots. Now we would all end up getting to the fast jets that we mm. wanted to fly in the end, but there was this holding system mm. and there was six slots available. Mm. I was now number seven. And one of those guys had probably jeopardised his career advancement by potentially up to a year because they were all in the mix now. Mm. And when you think about that, and I always translate that into business, you know, often you've got all these people and they sort of feel that they're in competition with each other all the time. But actually, by trusting each other and working together, I always say there's so many slices of pie. Mm. You know, and actually, and you must have seen this so many times in your work as well, you know, where actually when you're working together, it's so much better, isn't it? And you gain so much more. But by trusting in each other and by having each other's backs and demonstrating unselfish behaviour is phenomenal. And that is something that is intrinsic within the military. You know, that's why we do adventure training. That's why they build up this team camaraderie, because you potentially might need to take that bullet for your friend. And that is that feeling. And that's what the guys did for me that night.
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You couldn't have got through everything that you did if it was all hostile, you know. You, Completely you, innocent. Because you wouldn't enjoy it. You'd have to, because clearly, the, you know, the smile on your face when you started talking about the cadets was the absolute joy of yeah. flying. And if that joy had waned so much, yeah, it, it and, wouldn't... And, and you do. I mean, the camaraderie is fantastic. And my time, you know, on the squadrons was brilliant. And I genuinely loved it. Loved my flying, you know. You know, I get youngsters contacting me all the time via social media just saying, you're following my dream. I want to do this. Any advice? You know, and I say it's a fantastic dream to have. You know, it's an amazing career and one which I look back on. I think things have changed culturally, but they've changed outside of the military as well. You know, culturally where we are now compared to 30 years ago, we're in a completely different place. And you can't put that same lens of what happened to me on what is happening now. Now, I know we've seen pockets of that reported in the press and things like that, but you're always going to have pockets mm -hmm. in, in whatever environment well, you're working still, in. Well, there's still work to be done, isn't there? Obviously, in, you know, in certain, I mean, just, just what's going on at the moment, for example, in women's football yeah, and the absolutely. highlighting of bad behaviours. You know, I think it's progress and then, you know, take some learnings and then move on. And clearly there was a lot of progress um, yeah. in the military over this period. I mean, yeah. just even what's happened with regard to those officers who, you know, lost commissions because of same-sex relationships and all that oh stuff. Oh my which, goodness, you know, yeah. It's, it's, it is shocking. I mean, my best friend was gay and he couldn't be gay in the Air Force. It was illegal. Mm, you know, mm, you mm. potentially could be put in prison. Mm. And I just think, you know, all of these people that went through and he finally, when they changed the rules, he came out. So he was one of the very first openly gay pilots. And, you know, what he talks about is, is phenomenal. It's really emotional that to be at that stage where you can never bring your true self to work mm. is appalling. Especially you know? in that environment. Oh, well. exactly. And and surprisingly, yeah, he didn't make it through the fast jet training. And he says when he looks back, it was because the stress of what mm. he was living, these two separate lives in his mm. own mind, pretending to be someone he wasn't, worrying that maybe someone might out him. Mm. Oh, it was awful. And thank goodness things have changed. Can we talk about the the reality of war? And yeah. Because the fun thing is learning to fly and being in the jets. But you also are going to be going on missions where your job is to take people out yeah. and to, to end lives. Yeah. And how much of that is kind of part of the process that you've talked through? And as a woman, is it any different, do you feel? Because that's another thing as well that was always put as an argument, wasn't sure. it? That, that women kind of are more nurturing and they wouldn't be able to have that kind of killer instinct. You're absolutely right, Gabby. And that is the crux of it. I think you're going through, you're wanting to be the best, you're wanting to pass a course. And then the reality is, especially in the role I chose, which was ground attack, your role is going to be a bomber pilot. That is what you're going to be doing. And really... I know it sounds funny. It's sort of not really mentioned. There was no counselling. There was, I mean, not one time. I don't, I've never heard the word mental health, never heard the word stress mentioned in my entire career. There is now, by the mm -hmm. way. Thank goodness. 
But ultimately, you're taking these youngsters that are just loving flying, loving flying, loving flying, and now you're going to war. Mm. Okay. Now, I think the biggest wake-up call to myself was you go out to Iraq and it, people say, oh, gosh, it must be awful at that point. Actually, no. This is like I have been practising football the whole of my life and I'm finally selected to play, you know, a match. Yeah. A, a match. And you've been training for this moment, so you want to do it, which seems crazy because anyone that's not in that environment would go, my goodness, what is she, really bloodthirsty? No, that's not the point. You want to do the thing that you've trained to do. Now, that's lucky if you happen to be a search and rescue helicopter pilot because you're going to be doing something that's saving lives, and that's very rewarding. If it's a fast jet pilot, you will be, you hope, saving lives ultimately, but your role is to do what you have been tasked to do. And it's not to question it as well at that moment. Now, there is questioning it, of course, in final moments. And I had many missions. In fact, my very, very first mission I was on, it was a bombing mission. And I remember the guy that was um, running it, he said, my eyes literally went like saucers because at the time, our primary role out there had been reconnaissance. And we would take off and we would take photos and create imagery for all our troops that were on the ground, give them a bird's eye perspective. And we were building up all this incredible intelligence. And then on this occasion, I was called in, first trip. They said, it's a bombing mission. I was like, oh my gosh, I wasn't expecting that. And basically, I was on the target run and you've gone through it all in the simulator. You even train in the simulator at RAF Marin before you go with all the maps of Iraq. I mean, they can't simulate the heat. And it was about 40 degrees. So it was... Oh, my God. Absolutely hideously unpleasant. So it's and 40 you, degrees outside of the aircraft. It what is. What is it like in the cockpit? Well, hotter um, <laughs> is the answer. Um, and, and, and you've got a lot of kids And on. you are wearing, you have to wear your long johns because they are a fire retardant in case you, you know, you catch fire. They are the cotton layer in between you and the flying suit. So you would be wearing your long johns and, a, and obviously a, a long sleeve T-shirt underneath. You would then be wearing your flying suit. Over the top of that, you wear your G-suit, which is inflates, which has got maps and stuff in all the pockets. And then on the top, you're wearing something called a, a life preserver. So in case you land in water, it's got um, the inflatable bit that goes around the neck. Collar. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> and, and basically... Then you've also got a combat survival waistcoat on top of that oh as well. So you are... There's no air con in there, is there? No, and all the air conditioning is diverted to our instruments to yeah. keep the avionics cool on the ground. Right. So you have to close the top to taxi and then you're sometimes holding, waiting to take off. By this stage, um, I actually measured myself once. I lost six pounds in weight at the start of the mission to the end of the mission. A bit like a Formula One driver. They, yeah, they just like a Formula kind of One. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was phenomenal. And if you didn't take off... But when you did get to take off, you hit by this surge of air conditioning, mm. but you're now soaking wet. So mm. everything is soaking wet underneath. I mean, literally, I looked like I'd had a shower or been in a sauna in my clothes, which is what I pretty much had been. And then you're hit by this cold and then you actually get really chilly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, this is madness. Um, but no, going back to this one mission, we yeah. were we were on it and we'd, we'd done the final turn in and all my switches are live and I'm focused and I'm sort of saying 30 seconds continue. And we couldn't, we couldn't determine that we would hit the exactly the right target. And so we, we don't... we don't. So you bought? We bought, we bought. And that's absolutely fine to do that. Mm. And I said, was that my fault? And he was... My navigator said, no, we did absolutely everything right, Mandy. The right call is not dropping. Mm. You know, and another mission I was on... So you... So this is obviously to keep within the, the international rules of... of engagement, uh, engagement, yeah, absolutely. Engagement, you have to make sure that you are not um, hitting it's a school... No civilian or a, collateral damage or a, whatsoever. a hospital or anything. So this yeah. is a target that that is being given to you by yeah. those above... It could you. be 
be surface to air missile site or it's a huge gun. They have these huge guns called SA-60s that would shoot up to about 20, 30,000 feet. So often these are military targets that you're Mm. tasking. Mm. And another one was we were literally seconds to go and I had my, all my switches were live and I was about to press the button. I said three, two, and he said, stop, stop, stop. And there was a man with a camel walking close and he said he was within the fragmentation zone. So again, we wouldn't drop. And I liked that though. I really loved the fact that we were so disciplined. Mm. We're not gung-ho. We're not bloodthirsty. We don't want to injure people, Mm -hmm. but you will do your job. Mm -hmm. And And had the man with the camel not been there, you would have dropped. dropped. We would have dropped. Um, And hopefully have taken out some kind of... It was a huge huge gun site that we were taking out. Um, And on another occasion, we were operating up near Baghdad, actually, and uh, I remember President Bush Jr. had just taken over and we felt it was sort of him wanting to flex his muscles. So at this point, we'd only been flying as far, as far north as what's called the 33rd parallel, which is basically a line of latitude. And on this occasion, we were tasked to, to basically, it was a night mission. We were going really far north, just south of Baghdad. And our target was a telecommunication center. Basically, all of their intelligence was about to go underground and we were going to lose all of our intelligence. And so actually this on this occasion, we were tasked to destroy a building with all the fiber optics in, um, which was one of the hubs. And we turned north and it was the middle of the night. And my navigator said, Mandy, are your night vision goggles, which we wear on our helmets, and they come down as a sliding scale. Basically said, are they up or down? And I said, they're up. He said, leave it that way. Obviously, like a toddler, I instantly click them down. And the whole sky in front of us is lit up because they pick up all the, any tiny fragments of light. They will you know, amplify them so that you can see in the dark. And I'm now looking and it's literally like looking like fireworks night. You know, that whole passage where we're going up through, they are launching surface-to-air missiles, there's fragmentation, there's guns being fired up this as is well. The, the enemy is doing the this. The enemy is yeah, doing yeah. this, yeah. So the Iraqis, and um, they're putting up tracer rounds and we're heading straight in Because they know it. you're going They this. know that we're coming. There was a huge, huge mission on that night with loads of different targets mm. and different packages. We were working with the Americans as well, so they would have different sites and everything is coordinated, different heights. You know, the the safety aspect of it is phenomenal in the planning. Anyway, we turned on to our target. My job at this time was um it was a cooperative attack. So I was I was providing the laser energy for my wingman to drop the missile, drop the weapon. It would drop on a GPS coordinate and then I was lasing the door that this weapon would go into and the angle of which we were lasing it so that the weapon is going to pick up the GPS coordinates. It's then going to locate my laser energy. It's going to adjust its trajectory so that it enters at the angle that we want it to. We've got a delay on the fuse that will have it not exploding when it hits the door, but exploding when it's actually penetrated the building. So it's gone into the cellars mm-hmm. where the, all the fibre optics were and it will destroy that building at that point. And so there's a lot of planning that's gone into this, by the way. So all sorted, absolutely clinical. The mission is going ahead. I'm lazing. Weapon goes in. We see the bomb explode off the target. And it's just almost like directing someone to an island or library. You know, it's right. Come on to 190, Mandy. Yeah. Dink, dink, dink. And we come back. We land and the Americans said, oh, my God, we had a predator, um, an unmanned aerial vehicle airborne above your target. We've got some incredible footage. Would you like to see your mission played back in real time, like like the eye in the sky sort of thing. We were like, oh, absolutely. You know, we're all buzzing a bit mm. and it's been really exciting. Yeah, the adrenaline must be Adrenaline, enormous. absolutely. Th- it's about four o'clock in the morning now. 
Anyway, we went into this little um, area to go and watch this this film. And as I knew that I could see where I was, I could see, you know, I, the whole image of it. A man opens the door and is smoking a cigarette outside the back door of the building of which my laser energy is going into the other side of the building. And he has a cup of tea and you can see it because it's all on infrared. And then he throws the tea on the floor. You can see the big pool of white because it's glowing white as heat. He puts his cigarette down. He turns. He shuts the door. My weapon goes in. And my heart just stopped. And that's the reality of war. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you are doing your job. But the best thing was that the door then opens and he comes out. What? <laughs> and he literally runs across the car park, gets into his car, turns the engine on and starts driving in a straight line. And if you can imagine this car park had a fence line all the way around it, he went straight through the fence. And now I can see this fence going bing, 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 being pulled out as he is dragging a fence all the way across the desert. Because he must have been in the frame of the doorway that when oh the weapon God. went in the other side and exploded and the building started collapsing, around him he was protected because he was literally in the doorframe. Oh, my gosh. I cannot tell you the relief. <laughs> now, there was some sort of like chat at that point and I thought, am I responding to this differently? I don't want to kill someone. No, no. Am I, am I responding differently to this because I'm a woman? Yeah. I was relieved, but I spoke to the guys and they were all relieved mm. because none of us are doing it. That wasn't it. the aim That's of the not job. the aim of the job. That's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because, you know, that's what we've been trained to do and that is your role and that is your task. And if you're going to debate it through morals, you're in the wrong job, mm. you know. In the, the process of your career, kind of moving up, moving up, things are going very well. And, you know, there is there's kind of always an end game for anybody who's in the military. Yeah. Before you thought about things like family, what what was your kind of end game? Um, Where did you see yourself? Well, yeah, it's a, that's a good point. Actually, I would have probably loved to uh, be the boss of a squadron and to stay in and basically see my time out in the military. But I was also aware I did want children. And the two are not necessarily particularly compatible. Impossible? In, I would say, well, not impossible because some great friends of mine, well, she's the most highest ranking female air crew to have ever served in the military. She stayed in and has had two children and her husband is in as well. So they have done incredibly well. But no, for myself, it was an interesting one. So it, you, I was holding for quite a long time. So I was on the squad and I was about 30 years old and, I, and then my husband is quite a lot older than me. Sorry, Craig. Um, and basically, if we wanted children, we would have to be progressing. Yeah. And I didn't know I was pregnant, but I found out I was pregnant, but I'd been flying them for about four weeks and I hadn't known I was pregnant. And actually being hit constantly in the stomach by a G-suit is probably not conducive to growing a child inside you. So I miscarried on the day of the squadron's 90th anniversary, of which I had organised the entirety of the weekend with air displays, firework oh. displays, a ball for 450 people. And I literally am having a, you know, surgery, having a DNC and all oh the rest of it um, for the miscarriage, you know, and then literally put on your big girl's pants and go into work and run the whole weekend, which I did. Um, you must have somehow compartmentalised that. Yeah, I think you do, don't you? Um, you know, and your role as well. You know, we have a show face and you have to do that. And then you would. Did you deal with what had happened to you afterwards? Um, not really, actually. Um, but at least I, I took the positive. I've always been a positive person. And I said, well, at least I know I can get pregnant. So that's fine. 
But at this point now, I'd actually told, I had to tell the squadron boss and said, I am pregnant. So he said, oh my goodness, I've got to ground you immediately. And then I miscarried, but now they knew that I was wanting to have children. So we'd actually put in place for myself to come actually to High Wycombe to do a desk job while I was pregnant. And he said, would you still want to go? And I said, well, it seems sensible to me because I don't want to be in the situation whereby I'm flying and and, and I'm pregnant again. And you've experienced that before. Yeah, exactly. Happens, so. so I came to High Wycombe and I remember it being the most depressing moment of my life because I was putting a blue uniform on, which any aircrew hate doing. They like just being in their comfy pyjama type flying suit. And I remember walking and thinking, I'm not even pregnant. I'm now here to do this really boring desk job. This is just purgatory. Um, and it's like noose hanging around my neck. And I just remember just feeling so depressed. But I got pregnant very quickly and I had a very productive ground tour. I had two children um, in very quick succession with just 17 months between them. And then at the end of that, this is where really I hit this point. So my posting officer was um, a lovely gentleman who actually ended up being the chief of the air staff. So he was in the position where we say posting, they're deciding where you're going to go next. And he said, Mandy, right, your next job if you choose to accept, is going to be to go straight back to the front line to fly the tornado again. And and I said, but it's going out to Afghanistan. He's like, yeah, I know. I was like, I am breastfeeding a four-month-old baby and I've got a toddler. And he's like, okay, so can you get your parents out? No. Okay, so what are you going to do? And I was like, well, not that job. I, I can't physically so was, do it. Yeah, there was no question in your mind that that was at that um, point. Do you think something in your brain through having those children, though, had also just... I think your propensity towards risk changes. Mm. I think you... I wouldn't say... I've, I mean, I've always loved risk. I'm the person that flies down the mountain. You know, it can be slower going up, but I will be on the mountain bike down first because mm. I just love the feeling of speed. And, you know, I, you know anything that's slightly dangerous I absolutely adore it and um, yeah I think when you had children it is in the back of your mind because I used to think if I die because obviously you have to write letters and things before you go off to a war zone you know if I die obviously my parents would be sad and my sister and Craig but ultimately no one I'm not responsible for anyone the second you've had a child you think this is going to actually affect the rest of their lives Mm. if they've lost their mum and so actually I think it does change how you feel a little bit is that more for women than it is for men I think probably Mm. if I'm really honest well I think the proof is in the pudding isn't it and yeah um, there aren't many women who've had children who've carried on doing that no absolutely and I do think we are really we're in a really interesting time because there's been a huge push on getting more women into the military and there's been some people who are speaking out more prolifically around, we need to be very, very careful about this because we need to look at history. Mm. History dictates the fact that actually very few women, if you look at how long the flying training takes, and by the time they get to the front line, they're going to be then in sort of that childbearing stage. Mm. Mm. You know, But you can't say to everyone, but you've got to give everyone the opportunity to do mm. it. But we need to be very careful because what happens if you make it 50-50 women and men? then ultimately half of your force leaves. So do we need to get more Mm. pilots in just to cover the fact that women are going to have children? Mm. So you're really stuck in the middle Do you think it just kind of, it just finds its natural place though in terms of um, the Yes and no, I think, because at the moment, um, the former chief of the air staff who has just left was making it a huge mission and there was a lot of publicity around the fact that actually they had stopped recruiting white men basically women and ethnic minorities. They said, look, we, we need to increase the figures. And there was some press that, you know, the wrong end of the stick was taken where they said, stop giving me useless white men for the boards. It wasn't that the men are, are useless white men. Yeah. It's that the person felt that they couldn't do anything with these people 
But ultimately, you can't do that within, it's not legal for starters, which is why this is going through. So I can't comment too much on what's going on because there is a legal case going on. But I do feel very, very sorry for the, the people that are going through. But I can see why the chief of the SF was trying to do something because the number of women has not gone up particularly. And he was shocked that when he found out that, you know, for three years, not one woman had gone through fast jet training. You know, so ultimately something is not going through. And I do think it's the role modelling a little bit. And, I, you know, there is something that says, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Now, OK, you could argue, well, you did it and there was no one that you could see that was doing it. But ultimately I'm getting... I can sense that I feel in many ways that I'm operating now from bottom up. You have this policy change that says we're going to get more women coming in um, from top down. And then you've got the likes of myself who've now come out the Air Force. And, and now I'm really happy to be that role model, to be that face, to say, you know what, you can do this. When I was in the Air Force, I just wanted to get on with my job. I did not want any PR to say, look at this and glorifying the situation. You just want to be one of the team and get on with it. Now I'm out, I believe I have a responsibility to the next generation to ensure that that ladder is down and that others can follow in your footsteps. And we are seeing that now. The ultimate question or the, the question that would predicate the right answer maybe is, will the Air Force be better for having more women in it? Well, mixed gender teams work better in any environment. And we have seen that in literally with any every workplace, industry. every single industry. So there is no doubt about that. And I saw that change Literally, the atmosphere on my time on the squadrons, I saw it change by having a woman on board. And you could see how the men responded to you and actually how conversations would change. And actually, they went from just discussing politics and sport purely to actually talking about their feelings. And actually, and it's amazing those tiny little sort of changes that happen that create an entirely different atmosphere as well. So what I'm saying is I don't think you're ever going to get 50-50. Of course you're not. And I don't think we should get 50-50 for the reasons I've said that will become problems. But I just think that whatever they had been doing for the last 20 years has not worked. Mm. So they needed to do something that was different, which is why they tried to make a push. And what was really interesting as well is if you actually think, when you look at those aptitude tests, if they're taking on far fewer pilots, they're going to take the people who are scoring the highest in these aptitude tests. Well, who are the people that's going to score very, very highly in aptitude tests are probably going to be the gamers. Because guess what? You're practicing pretty much what these aptitude tests all the time. Who tend to be gamers? It's predominantly guys still, mm -hmm. you know. I'm not using this big no, broad brush, but it is predominantly. And so actually you're going to therefore only get these people that are gaming. Who are the people that tend to game an awful lot? Tends to be quite introverted. Are they the people that you're really wanting as the mm. officers of the future? So it feels like the the selection tests need to be wider it, and just have more agree. strands to it. And I think this is the whole point is that stop just looking at these aptitude tests of who is scoring the best mm. on their literal hand-to-eye coordination. Let's look at the broader subject. If you pass the aptitude test, you have the ability to be a pilot. You're mm. good enough. So now let's look at the bigger picture mm. and say, actually, let's open that up and really start to think who are the best people. Let's look at those personalities, which they do do, of course, through you do, you know, teamwork exercises, leadership exercises. And so it's not just on the aptitude test. Taking out pregnancy and having children, uh, look, looking kind of across the board, what is the, the usual kind of end age, you know, where somebody 
hangs up there. Yeah, so there's different points, actually. So it used to be you sign up for what was 16 years or your 38th birthday, and it's now 18 years or your 40th birthday. So that is a natural stopping point. So you You stop flying missions at 40. Well, you you get an option to leave. That is your initial service that you sign up for. You're not really due to leave before that, which is when I left. So I left Mm -hmm. on my 38th birthday, Um, and that was the commission I'd signed up for. But if you want to stay in, you can stay in then till you're 55. Um, is would, another... you be, would you still be flying? Yes, you can. But it, it would you can go on to a different role, basically. They have a professional aviator what role. What tends to be the age and that people are not flying beyond? Um, what, I mean, I men think, mainly, I think the but... official age is 60. You can still fly? Yeah, yeah up to 60. Yeah. yeah. But I think... I'm not sure if on the front line whether it's 55, whether you can fly multi-engines. It feels old, doesn't it? It, feel, um, it feels... I'm getting I mean, closer that, to it. It's know, feeling but, less old, but, but yeah. It's, do you know what I mean? It feels, I do. It feels like a... Which is, I mean, it's great that that is a possibility. I think but, it might even be 65, you wow. know. I can't... I don't know. It's terrible, isn't it? I, I probably should know this fact, but I don't. I'm just thinking about menopause and being a fighter pilot. <laughs> Don't. I mean, honest, it really worries me. I mean, I know obviously, you know, I, I listened obviously to many of your podcasts in the past and I just love it because it is just like listening to my own journey through it. And I'm thinking, my goodness, you know, if I was flying frontline during the menopause as I've gone through, you know, those days where you're thinking, I can't, I, mean, I can't even think of the words for things. I mean, I do motivational speaking now and quite often on the stage I go, and there's the, and I go, can anyone just, Give me a shout out for what the word, and then you know we go acronym. So thank you. That is the word I'm after. Um, you know, but what's great though is because I'm doing these public speaking, and I sort of go, I can't remember the word. It's the menopause, everyone. By loads of women afterwards say thank you for just saying that on the stage. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it just brings it up, doesn't it? To, yeah, well, you know, I think the I just think there was also probably there's a period of life whether you're going to be a fighter pilot or whether you're going to be a Premier League footballer or an athlete. There's a period where you are going to be at your physical and mental best. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and it's probably um, a bit ridiculous to think that somebody could, you know, be as physically and mentally sharp at 24 as they can at 63 to yeah. do that job, you know. Cause but it's, you're now getting so much more experience as well. So, OK, so your responses might slow down ever so slightly or reaction times, mm. I suppose. But ultimately, your levels of experience are actually, phenomenal. Actually, I read, read something. I might have even been in black box thinking, but I read a, a piece about that to do with pilots, actually. that um, It was to do with midlife, basically saying that the older, this is commercial pilots, yeah. the older pilots, um, while they might not have their reaction time, they're, they're kind of macro, if you like. They're overall yes, phenomenal it is amazing yeah yeah so so definitely don't worry folks if you get on a plane tomorrow to go to i don't know barbados <laughs> and the pilot's 63 not a problem yeah uh, absolutely um, my husband is 63 as it happens and is a pilot is he? he's, and, a, commercial um, he's pilot. a commercial yeah he's um now trains in the simulator he's stepped back from the front line but um yeah you know old and bold and he's yeah a phenomenal aviator and has the world, a world of experience and knowledge. And I think, you know, if I got on and I heard Craigie Hicks and Silky Tones, I'd be very happy with that. Okay, good. I'll listen. I'll listen. <laughs> it's not for him. Um, but, no, but I think also you kind of, they're the pilots that tend to give you a little bit more crack as well, don't they? Because they're yeah, so relaxing. Exactly <laughs> they that. They a, a bit of um, a bit of banter as yeah. well. They go, they've got their kind of type five, their yeah. little routine that they oh, do. Oh, yeah. Uh, which definitely. is all good. Was that never an option for you, commercial flight? I did my commercial pilot's license did when I left. Did you want to go join an, Air Force, a, yeah. uh, an airline? I never did, actually. And when when I left the Air Force at 38, my children were, gosh, they must have been sort of six and seven-ish type thing. My husband was flying for the airlines as well. And I thought, my gosh, can you imagine if you're both flying at the same time? What happens if an aircraft gets diverted or, you know, and all of these sorts of things? And I just thought, this is just going to become a nightmare. We either get 
completely deconflict our schedules so that we're, you know, someone's at home with the children all the time and then we never see each other, so we'll end up getting divorced. Or we're both off at the same time and then we just have a nightmare of who who covers the children. And so actually it was a really interesting one. I was flying with a young cadet actually. So when I left the regulars, I then signed up as a volunteer reservist to fly youngsters from the air cadets. And you take them on this 30 minute air experience flight. And I was flying with this young girl and um, I mentioned it in my book. It's how I closed my book actually. So spoiler alert. But basically at the very end of the trip, she'd been, you know, pretty monosyllabic and all the rest of it. And she hadn't given me much, very teenage-esque. And we'd done aerobatics and she was grunted throughout. We landed and I said, Emily, you are the most phenomenal pilot in the basic stage I've ever flown with. And she said, oh, but you say that to everyone. I said, as it happens, I've never said that before to anyone. You are amazing. She said, you're joking. It's all I've ever wanted to do. I was so scared of showing you, Mandy, because I just didn't want to, you know, what happens if I tried really hard and then I failed at it? What would I do then? And it was this eye-opening moment to myself where we talked about that fear of failure, mm. talked about leaning towards opportunities. I said, oh, Emily, you can't live your life like that. Grab things with both hands. I said, I could have given up on you because you've just been grunting at me for half an hour. But I didn't because I could see, you know, the skill that you had. And I said, but it would be so easy not to have done that. You've got to, to go for it. And I said, how are you doing at school? She went, I hate school. And I was like, but school enables this. And it's that joining of the dots. You could almost see these cogs turning where she thought, I've got my purpose. Mm. I saw her about a year later and she said, ma'am, I'm so pleased you're here. I got my exams and did my else and I want to be a pilot just like you. And in this moment when she said, just like you, it was there was a lightning bolt moment for myself because I'd just done my commercial pilot's licenses and I'd been holding it thinking that sort of seek, that horrible moment in the bottom of your stomach, you think, I don't really want to do this, but it's what everyone does when they leave the Air Force. It's a natural way to earn the money, blah, it's well paid. And I don't want to do it. And she said, I want to be a pilot just like you. And I thought, oh my goodness, I I can do something different. And that's when I decided not to go into the airlines to set up my keynote speaking, my motivational speaking business. And I started off doing it in schools, actually. And I would say if I could just change the change the mindset of one, one student in any speech I give, then to me that is success. And I must have spoken to hundreds of thousands over the last 12 years. And it's been phenomenal. And then they speak to their parents and their parents go, do you do, do, you do businesses? I was like, yeah, I can do. And it's just grown and grown and grown. But it did start and I love doing schools and I do a lot of speech days and things like that. And it's mm. you can just see people thinking, oh, my goodness, I can do that. Yeah. And it might not be that thing. It might not be being a fighter pilot. It's, but obviously it's not it's, always about the flying. And I no. say that to them. It's about recognising what do you love doing? Make that your passion. Anything is basic. And I know that there's different charities are out there, but getting people to come into schools and talk about their experience is so powerful. There is just nothing like it. And I'm, I work for a charity called Inspiring the Future and they provide, actually it was predominantly women. It was set up by Nick Clegg's wife, Miriam Gonzalez. And it's really great charity. You can just pop into your local school, you know, or they can request that someone comes in. And I think her aim was to get 15,000 women on board and it's over, you know, 500,000 women, you know, all over the country now. And it's brilliant. You, It's just about creating a vision because apparently it was something like at the time when they were doing the studies, 76% of girls would only go into a career where they'd met someone or were one removed from it, a parent's friend. Mm-hmm. And so actually giving the visibility of different roles that are out there is actually very, very powerful. 
And so are you, uh, Mandy. Thank you so much. Uh, at that moment, and we never have planes over here. We're not in the flight path. At that moment when you said, this is kind of, this story finishes my book, a plane went overhead. Ta-da! And also you may have heard, dear listeners, um, some pigeons deciding to sit on the roof as well for the first time. We've got it all today. More than, yeah. more than me. Two different flying opportunities above oh, our heads. Oh, wonderful. Um, and I'm really, really delighted that you've been able to come in and just inspire, hopefully, people listening. Maybe somebody listening is thinking about a change or doing something different or... Maybe they've got children who are also looking at the possibility of doing something that seems outside of their comfort zone and you have inspired me. Oh. So hopefully... Um, well, if that says something, Gabby. Because you, you inspire so- us all every day when we see <laughs> thank you. Thank so. you so much, Mandy. It's, thank you. It's been really great having you here. Thank, thank you. you, Gabby. Well, I think Mandy's got a lot more stories to tell. I could listen to them all day. What a fantastic and fascinating career she's had. Please let me know if you've been enjoying this mini-series by leaving a review or posting on our Facebook group, The Midpointers. And if you missed the previous two episodes, I urge you to listen back. Both Ed Jackson and Fiona Spargo Mabs have had extraordinary things happen to them and refuse to be beaten by them, striving instead to create something positive out of life-altering events. I'll be back with business as usual next week and joined by a brilliant celebrity guest to talk about all things midlife. I hope you can join me then. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.